Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy, powered by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Good things come to those who wait, or so the saying goes. Does that mean that the new Digital Personal Data Protection Act 2023 in India is indeed a good law? At least we can agree it was a long wait for this law to be adopted. And today we dive a little deeper into its scope, applicability, and what everybody needs to do to start complying sometime soon. We do so this with this week's guest, Malavika Raghavan, PhD candidate in Information Systems and Innovation at the London School of Economics and Senior Fellow for India at the Future of Privacy Forum. Malavika is a lawyer with a background in policy-focused research, studying the impacts of digitization on low-income individuals in India. In the past, she also worked several years for the global law firm Ellen & Overy. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Syrian's Privacy. So we've already been laughing and cutting up before we even start, so this is going to be a wonderful podcast. Y'all hold on to your britches because we're about to have some fun here. But we know we have to start with the unexpected question. Oh, here we go. Scared for it, Malavika? Are we ready? Yeah, we are. Who inspires you? Wow. Okay. I mean, my I'm going to be that person. The first, the first thing is I'm just thinking my mom and my dad. Well, it's just yeah. I think I and I've just come back from like holiday with them, so I feel like doubly inspired. I feel like they've been super role yes. models. But I'm also thinking maybe something that's a little bit less cringy, right? I should be like, let's see, who else inspires me? I mean. Lately, I've been quite, I've been finally kind of getting to know the environment movement, which is not my line of work at all. And until recently, I've just been on the sidelines and pretending it doesn't matter. But I've been quite inspired by Greta Thunberg. I mean, I just think I did not have the clarity she did at her age. So, Mm -hmm. right. Maybe she did. She does too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Paul. I think you've asked me this before and I still... I'm still trying to figure out. A date written down on it. So it might have just been one of those random ones I pulled out of my head. So apologies to the listeners. But at some point, we're going to start repeating unexpected questions. But even then, it's, it's, it's a hard one. But I think in the, in, in the data protection community, to keep it on topic, sort of, I think Jakob Kohnstam always was an inspiration for me when he was commissioner at the Dutch Data Protection Authority, just the subtle way he was able to approach the topic, the conversation, and also get results out of all these international meetings. And right now, also Gabriela Zenfier, just the volume of work and and knowledge that that she does and has is absolutely inspiring. Absolutely. I'm going a totally different direction. I don't know if it's because I'm about to drive through Tennessee and Gatlinburg, but Dolly Part. Well, (laughs) I, I get that. I mean... 
a woman that came from such a poor background and has made it so great. She still has a fabulous sense of humor and she gives away so much. We actually lived in Sevier County in the Gatlinburg area before Pigeon Forge area. And she actually does give free books to kids and college scholarships when they graduate high school and everything there. And so what is not to like about Dolly? I think my favorite story of her, and it's captured, it's, it's on the internet now, is she competed in a Dolly Parton lookalike contest. And she <laughs> lost. And she lost. <laughs> it was absolutely bonkers. She just happened to be passing by, I think, a boardwalk out on the beach somewhere in California, and they were doing the Dolly Parton lookalike. She's like, well, this looks like fun. So she joined, and she lost. <laughs> And then she had to tell the organization, hey, listen. And then she had to writing. She had to make it, you know, real. But apparently she didn't bring enough Dolly to the competition. So absolutely crazy. It kind of reminds me of the one of the singer that showed up for a, I think, was it Adele? She showed up for a music competition yeah. where they were singing her song and he was just chained, you know, they were trying out for the part and she was just hanging out with the others and saying she hopes she hits it right and everything like this. And when she got on stage, you could hear the person recording the video or other people around going, you hear that voice? That's her. I swear <laughs> to God, that's really Adele. And it was. So it was pretty cool. So, yeah, that, that video I do remember. I need to look up the Dolly Parton one. <laughs> <laughs> so it is. Okay, beautiful. So we are actually here to talk about something really important, which is really cool and really surprised, Paul, of how fast it actually moved through. So give us... Yes and no. I mean, I do recall when I was still sitting in the Article 29 working party that I think it's... Fast is relative. 2013, 2014, that we were discussing a task force, a partnership with India to help them draft a data protection law. This is a this this must have been a decade ago at least, if yes. not longer. So it was a run up and a fast launch. Yes, I think that's the that's the right summary. But Malavika, maybe you can give us some of the of the history of this this long and fast process. Yeah, here's old when it started, Paul. <laughs> no, I was actually going to say. I, I mean, I have so a couple of things to say about that, but also I was going to say. I do think having been through a lot of this, Dolly Parton is also more important, maybe. I don't know. I just want to say <laughs> I don't want to look equally important topic. Probably been around for as long. But also, no, I think, yeah, obviously it depends if you are a kind of privacy enthusiast, as I was one self-identifies these days. I don't think that language is even around, I think, when I was at law school. But but I mean, of course the you can, it depends on where you start telling the story. I mean, obviously, you know, some of our earliest privacy kind of court cases, actually, that cemented the right to privacy started in the 50s, right after the Constitution, you know, bam, we went straight into a lot of privacy law was actually court based and court doctrine and traced back to the uh, Constitution and all this. But you're right. right in that. I think the first time we really had the idea of privacy, you know, or data protection, and I should make that distinction. But I think data protection really came into India because of the big outsourcing boom. And that's kind yeah. of reflected in our Information Technology Act. That was in the 2000s, you know, it was passed in 2000, updated in 2008. So the conversation mm -hmm. was very much like in the modern format kind of came in there. And, you know, interestingly, it didn't come from the privacy angle. It came from the, oh, 
we're processing all this personal data. What if, you know, and many, you know, many of those concerns came from non-Indian individuals' personal data, right. you know, medical transcription services, things like that. So what do we do? And then there was this kind of, it's much more, I think, an e-commerce trade, that kind of angle. So I think it's interesting in India because you've always had this competing on the one end. There's this kind of human rights, right to privacy, right against search and seizure, that kind of, you know, we're going from bodily integrity into, you know, the kind of extended mind, whatever it is these days. And then on the other hand, you have this very commercial, like, how do we handle this so that we keep long-term interests in mind? Yeah. But I would say, and you're right, actually, Paul, I think the, for me personally, so this is me, and I think there are a number of people who've written about this. The story really begins with these huge e-government kind of plans that kicked off in India again around the 2000s. So there was huge like information state projects, <laughs> one of which was our biometric uh, identity program, which I'll come back to because it's deeply, I think, intertwined with the whole privacy jurisprudence and, and the bill. So interesting. Yeah. But also other things. There's an at grid, you know, large surveillance infrastructure. There was a lot of digitization of, you know, social security programs, so a lot of kind of almost kind of, you know, 20th century New Deal type stuff going on. And therefore, a lot of it was digital. And then so right back then, I remember in 2010 was the first kind of approach people on privacy issues, which came up in the context of these concerns of all these large datafied public infrastructures. So that's quite interesting because, you know, it was almost independent of the whole private sector data processing right. question. Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Because I think we had a couple of drafts, you know. Uh, in 2014, there was one that was leaked, which was nearly, you know, nearly going to, into parliament. It was an election year and then bam, no one wanted it. It was not the yeah. issue to push. Uh, right. And I think, yeah, I, you know, so even then we had a report with the privacy principles, all this. So in many ways, this is the third or fourth, I don't know with, which iteration of the modern version of it. But for us, uh, you're right, Paul, I think around 2015, 16, we got this kind of process. And I'm going to contradict myself, but I'm going to be a lawyer. But like, yes. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> no, I, said, I think if you ask some people, uh, including, you know, a lot of public servants have been saying in the last couple of weeks, oh, you know, it's been six years, everyone's had time for this or eight years, depending on how you count. But I fundamentally think, and I'd love to go through some of that because I think it ties to these questions, deeper questions of privacy that is kind of right. relevant to our, our conversation. So there's that idea of oh it was it's eight years old or six years old and then there's another idea which is literally it's a year old because essentially we had like two or three drafts that came up in the six-year period but last august they, they were the draft that had been heavily consulted was basically withdrawn and mm -hmm. this new one I, I in many ways i think is brand new to me right. it's just like it was a bolt from the blue things that i'm still kind of rereading the clauses being like what what was that Nice. Because the version that was withdrawn also covered non-personal data right that was not just about personal data yeah, I mean, I think, and I've, actually to Gabriella, who we were talking about earlier, I think one of the, when we were discussing it, I th I was saying that it kind of became the kitchen sink problem. It started off as a data protection bill, actually as a privacy law, became a data protection bill, suddenly became about intermediary liability, then about non-personal data, and then, you know, data localization. And we were like, what are we talking about? So I think it had that. Everybody was throwing things in the bucket. I wasn't sure what was going to come out the other end. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, it's kind of a victim of its own success in many yeah. ways. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and we have this one, which doesn't have the privacy now, uh, the word privacy anywhere in the text. So that's an interesting one. So it's kind of, we went through all that and then I'm, I'm sure we'll jump into this. This is a very interesting kind of new, in many ways, brand new legislation. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And this indeed was in the end passed within a year. 
do we already have a date when it will start to apply or is that still up in the air? So it's an interesting one. And in many ways, it does already, I mean, it, it has come into effect in that it's, it's applicable. But it's interesting because it's not in, come into force. So it's received okay. presidential assent. There's a notification. It's, it's law. But then it's interesting because the, the law itself says that it will, you know, different government notifications will determine when all or part of it will come into force. So we again have this really, and which takes us back to the privacy judgment, actually, which, you know, if we go through the timeline, I'm happy to do a little, you know, canter through the history. It's a little bit like we have this right to privacy in India now, specifically laid out by the Supreme Court in August 2017. And we've been kind of waiting for an enforcement of it. And this was supposed to be the enforcement structure. But now then we have a bill where now again, we're waiting for the enforcement of the enforcement structure. So it's kind of, it's an interesting, we're in this limbo phase. And I'm scared because the, the elections are coming again next year. Uh -oh. So I think the incentives to, yeah. so let's see how that all plays out. But yeah, it's, it's right. right. So, I mean, I, I know that also in the, on the podcast, we discussed back in 2021 that that would be the big year where both China and India would pass their data protection law. And then the two most populous countries in the world, almost 3 billion people in one goal, would have data protection laws protecting their personal data, as well as ours, if we would, would go there or our data would go there. And then, of course, it was a disappointment that India's law didn't make it past the finish line. It is now, but we're still waiting to see how it will turn out in practice. That might be difficult also for companies, especially global companies, to start to comply with this legislation because they know that right. there are additional obligations, quite GDPR-like, but they have no idea what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's 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 almost like, I think the, I think being in privacy and data protection in India, as in anywhere, is kind of a measure of where you're, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, like glass half full, <laughs> glass half full. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In many ways, having waited for this glass, are we really sure that's a glass? <laughs> I have I thrown it against the wall, but it's like, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I guess the glass half world person in me would be like, okay, this is amazing. At least we have a law. And in many ways, I think it's the the shift working in the space. Like if I think back to 2015, 16, the idea that large corporates would call you into a room and ask you to speak about privacy you know, at the keynote or something right. was just a joke, right? Like no one was really dating. Not, not that they weren't taking seriously, but it was very much, oh, you know, GDPR is coming. It was that kind of, it was out there, mm -hmm. you know. And so, and even for government, I think India was the G20 presidency this year. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of global movement. As you said, China's got their bill now and there's always a bit like, oh my God, you know, there's always that kind of jousting. We also need to be on par kind of thing. So it's actually the optimist in me would say this is amazing, but actually there's kind of a cultural moment where you have to have a data protection law. Like I know Graham Greenleaf does those tables every year where he updates mm -hmm. and it just feels like after point, it's kind of bad. Even the US has a data protection draft federally, right? Like you're like, oh my God, like we cannot. So in a way it's, it's kind of, I think it's great that we finally have something. But as I said, I think the kind of downsides in many ways or the pessimist talk in me would say, you know, there was so much hope and optimism after the Puttaswamy judgment. This is the August 2017 judgment where mm -hmm. really the question is, do we have right to privacy? And the answer was right. resoundingly yes. And it kind of forced the executive's hand because it said that we need to now put in place an enforcement framework or kind of, we need to give effect to this right. We can't just have it on the books. And then specifically in the judgment, it says government has constituted 
this committee, which is going to make a bill, and that's going to protect privacy. But as I said, the word privacy doesn't really apply, appear in the bill at all. It's, it's very much kind of focused on data protection now. And I think that in many ways, we can talk about, I mean, if, if that would be interesting, the, the different iterations. True. I think, like you said, in 2021, there was this moment where we went from a core regulatory model, which was very kind of light touch. But after consultation, they decided to set up an independent regulator for deep data protection, which was a huge kind of optimist. The moment we said, okay, this is great. It's going to have all the selection process. We're going to have a full suite of enforcement. We're going to have all these rights, the right to be forgotten in statute. Like, how cool is that? You know, how would it work? I'm saying, how cool is that? I'm sure lots of legal counsel are like, what does she think? Again, what do you mean, this is cool? This is a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) But I just, yeah, it was very innovative. I was talking about regulatory sandboxes and all this. And then now you have, I feel, I mean, if you are again, kind of very enthusiastic about that, there's this kind of scaling down of ambition. I do think it's like a very, you know, basic law. We'll see what comes. As I said, you know, as an optimist, you would say, a lot of this is left to notification. So I think this terms as may be prescribed by central government appears like literally every alternate clause or something. I said, well, yeah, so it's it's kind of, as I said, part of me is happy, but part of me is the agony of an ecstasy of privacy kind of enthusiasm. Ecstasy <laughs> of privacy. I've got to remember that one. <laughs> for for a law like this, what what would be a typical implementation period under Indian law? Would we expect something like China where you get 12 weeks or would it more GDPR like where you get two years? This says 10 months, doesn't it? It says 10 months after it, after the effective date or something like that for compliance. I mean, it's it's a tough one. I mean, I actually was discussing this morning with, a, I was on a call with a bunch of people about this question. And I think it's a really tough one because really it's effective date. As I said, the notification brings certain things into it into force. And then the question is, if you would say six to 10 months from that point, or would you say six to 10 months from the point of passage? Uh, I think Mm. it's really curious because the previous versions of the bill did have transitional provisions. So there were various kind of, you know, formulations for different sections of the bill. So there was actually, we'd done a lot of work, I think around 2019 or 20 with my colleague Shrikar Prasad. We'd actually put together like an implementation timeline because it was so close to passage. We were like, let's think ahead. You know, what comes yeah. first? Does anonymization guidance come first? What comes next? Right. You know, what comes? And there was guidance in the legislation at that point. But so I think it's fairly a conscious move to strip it out. And to your point on what's usual for legislation, I mean, I think the 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 truth is it's it is so different this area, and the way that the law has developed hasn't really followed any standard kind of. It's 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 gone up and down. So I think a lot of this, it's also such a political area, surprisingly, like it would think, it, you know, it's all these nerds reading these clauses, but I think data is such a asset, right? It's a, it is an asset right now, I think. So I think, well, I think a lot the of problem this, is we don't have data nerds working with the privacy law. We have <laughs> politicians working with the privacy law. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, again, I think when uh, 10 years ago, this was not, this would not take off this conversation. And now it, literally it's in the press every other day in the, on the front pages, yeah. you know, in India as well. So I think that's the, the upside is the politicians are engaging, but sometimes that might also be, you know, the risk. what leads to, yeah. <laughs> so do people in India actually feel that they have that right to privacy and that right to data protection? I know it, it's been confirmed by, the Supreme Court in the Swami case, is it also something that the average person in the street would would care about and would think is important? Uh, this is such a great question because I think, I mean, so my PhD, why I'm back in academia now is very much 
this idea that things are socio-legal, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We can't just put things in a law and then bam, it's real. I think so much of it is socio-legal and like well, how, what is, well, it needs to be a moment where it culture, culturally like crystallizes what people feel at that point of time. And for the longest time, I would say the discourse in India is that privacy is like a luxury problem, right? If you mm-hmm. have all these poor people or a substantial part of the population is below the poverty line, you know, first they need food in their bellies and then we can worry about their. It's interesting because I think now we have evidence and I was involved in a couple of studies, but a lot of other organizations have also slowly started doing kind of India-based privacy studies, the kind of, you know, Alan Weston surveys that you had in the US in the 1970s. I think those kind of, we don't have that scale yet, but there's more and more data coming up from the ground in terms of testing privacy preferences and attitudes, right? Whether that's quantitative or qualitative. And so I think, I do believe, and I've been involved, I'm happy to share links to those studies where I was also involved in like deep two-hour conversations with people from low-income backgrounds in rural areas of the country. And that experience, I mean, forget the statistics and all the descriptive statistics that came from that. Like personally for me, it was a moment where it really um, made me, you know, when I'm in these policy rooms, think about how we question our own privilege, right? The idea that people who are first-time users of a smartphone don't have detailed mental models of how these interfaces work. Mm-hmm. Right. And that they don't have a cultural, you know, entire like cultural language around what what happens when and what they're expecting. And like reasonable expectations is a real legal social thing, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer your question, obviously, India is like 29 countries in one. I say or 30 countries in one. It's actually like Europe because it's like 29 or so 30, massive. 30, you know, all these. We have 28 national languages and like 3000 dialects right. or something. So, but so geographically and then, of course, there's all these stratas going on demographically. But I do think there's a growing sense that privacy isn't an elitist construct. And that's in the Supreme Court judgment as well. So, and I think also it's becoming, so there are multiple pressures. One is it's no longer easy to go in a room and say, you know, poor people don't care about privacy. Just because right. I think the evidence, I mean, you start asking who's saying these things. Like if you look at the people saying these things, very easy to do like a more critical discourse analysis. But then I think the evidence is just there. And also mm-hmm. there've been like big internet movements. So the Internet Freedom Foundation, for instance, people there were involved in the net neutrality movement, which was very much about being equal online. And then, of course, in the Supreme Court judgment itself, it, it kind of crystallizes further this idea that even if it's still a contested value, it's now just a value. I think that you can't you can't just say you people don't care about it. I, I think right to look, it, it, it matters. But Paul and I have discussed that quite often privacy does seem to be a luxury for those with money because (laughs) social media models, they are free for everyone. But if you want privacy and you want to pay for it, who's going to pay for it? Those who have money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because this was also a big discussion in India, right? When this whole zero rated model started coming in and the net neutrality debate. And the question is... You know, can you subsidize this? If rich people wanted to pay for privacy, could you? I mean, first of all, I think rich and poor is like such a distinction, like multidimensional poverty. But anyway. Yes. But honestly, I just, I feel like, and and so now I study information systems as well as law. And I realize like so much of this is to do with the organizing vision for technology. Mm -hmm. It's literally what values do you want to hard code? It's not that hard to make privacy preserving technology or whatever the lingo is. It's really what values do you accommodate at the start of the software development process or any development process. And I think it's just hard now because many of those products and platforms and ways of working are out there. So it's, and they didn't put, many of them didn't put privacy at the heart of it. 
at least in the in the middle you know part of the internet that kind of whatever we call web 2 and so i think it's hard a lot of this i do think weirdly is is underneath it's a lot it's quite political actually like the value of privacy is a very meta conversation but every place i go to i do feel like underneath there are some entrenched views around what what should be valued right and just i think the other thing which really helped crystallize it for me is in the putraswami judgment what the lead judge talks about the constitutional scheme in india and he says the constitutional scheme is not that you you know you that you sacrifice civil and political rights in order to have social economic rights like the idea is that you just have rights you're a human being right and you have a right to speech you have a right to privacy you have a right to like education and food you were talking about how the the rights and it depends on what priorities that you're focusing on and i think you're yeah. right i doubt very many companies actually develop their technology and say hey let's forget privacy no they're valuing the money from the ads they're not saying but let's forget privacy so I, I think you're absolutely right. But I wanted to turn, if you don't mind, speaking of privacy, you made me think of something that really bothers me with a lot of privacy laws, and that's the privacy rights of children. And India has defined the child as being someone under the age of 18. But I thought there was something interesting in there that they're not just protecting data from minors, which is my point with a lot of laws. They protect data from minors, not data on minors. And you can have data on minors that are just as detrimental as whatever data you're getting from minors. And in here, and this is, it's on page eight, and it's section nine, where it talks about the data fiduciary before processing the personal data of a child or a person with a disability. And it talks about data of children and how shall not undertake processing that is likely to cause detrimental effect on the well-being of a child or undertake tracking or behavioral monitoring of children, which would be the data from children. But the data on children, so not likely to cause a detrimental effect on the well-being of a child, that doesn't have to be data from children. That could be data on children, like their social security number that their parents perhaps provide to a medical clinic. Have you mm -hmm. looked at that part of all to see if they are actually looking at rolling special protections over data on children as opposed to just data from children? Yeah, I mean, I do have, I've, I've been engaging in this. I'm not a expert on the children area, but in this particular law, so I would defer to say, for instance, Neha Chaudhary, just a shout out to her, Ikigai Law, probably right. one of the best kind of lawyers in this space in India. But I would say on this provision, so my understanding is a couple of things, right? I like that distinction that you're making between data off and data on children. Yeah. I do think that it's probably because the data on children part of it is covered by parental consent. So there's a sense that data on children right. would be anyway. I mean, consent is the main grounds under this legislation. That's another shift across the many years of its iteration. So if consent is the main ground, the idea is that all of the consenting is done by the parent or guardian of the child. Which uh, is so wrong because we yeah. know that older siblings and uncles and aunts and grandparents and everybody else provide data on children that don't yeah. have the legal right to consent for them. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, totally. And I think another, I mean, a fundamental issue with with Clause 9, Section 9, is that, you know, it also equates persons with disability and children in, in I think, what was meant to be. And the question is, you know, disability doesn't automatically yeah. affect, you know, your capacity to contact. Right. or your, So I think that that's one kind of red flag. But I think it's also interesting because 18 is the age here. So that's yeah. quite, that's, that's fairly, that's much older. Yeah. 
And I think the question is, how, how do ad tech models, how are they going to deal with this? Or even if you're an ed right. tech platform, right? And the monitoring or tracking is not allowed. My sense is that there is also some exceptions where, and this is what I've kind of heard based on conversations that I've been having with a few people, that where platforms can show that they have data protection practices, they potentially could get exceptions because there is this clause which allows government to kind of bless certain class of data fiduciaries right. or certain types of data fiduciaries. So maybe you could have a GDPR style tracking kind of mitigation right. thing. But yeah, at the at this current point of time, it seems a fairly kind of strong position. Also because, you know, the, the classic issue that in order to identify the age of one person on the platform, well, you're going to have to do age verification across. And everyone. how do you verify consent is legal in yeah. every, none of us have solved that problem. That's for sure. So yeah. what stands out for you most in this? What is your most favorite part of it or your most problematic part of it? I mean, I, to be honest, it's it's been super great the last couple of weeks just because I think it it's kind of like being back in law school, right? You're kind of, at the end of the day, it's like you're reading this legislation afresh and it is afresh. Like a lot of this stuff I have not seen in any of the previous right? situations. A lot of us have. <laughs> Maybe and going line by line. <laughs> yeah, but I, I always feel like someone has an influence versus interest like you know, x-axis, y-axis chart somewhere. And my interest is high, but probably my influence is very low. I did not get this draft. <laughs> I think at this point of time, a PhD student, no one. But yeah, I think. But I mean, there's, there's lots of, I mean, to me, really, the early stuff, like the foundational stuff is really interesting. Like the scope and application and exemptions is, I think, where all the, where this law will land in terms of compliance or enforcement. And I just think there are some huge changes to how the scope and the application sections have been treated. But there's also Mm -hmm. huge shifts. So the, you know, the position on cross-border data flows, that has dramatically shifted. And I think it's much more industry friendly now. But also this whole idea of the grounds of processing. So we've been through the whole gamut now. We've gone from everybody agreeing that consent doesn't work, it's dead, etc., to experimenting with all of these grounds and talking about reasonable purposes and legitimate purposes and so on. And now we've just come back to consent, basically. So there's there's that. And then I think the the last big conceptual thing that is littered across this legislation is that it's kind of becoming a two-speed law. So there's a, da- there's a horizontal data protection law, but really there's kind of one set of treatment for state processing of data and a different set of treatment, including grounds, including exemptions, right. et cetera, right. for private sector. So it's, I think there's, those are the four. And if I could be cheeky and add a fifth is I think what I'm still working through myself is the shift in the enforcement regulatory design. It's just um, the mm-hmm. kind of scaling back from a regulatory authority to the data protection board, I think is quite, you know, it, it, it has huge consequences. So I'm waiting to see how that plays out. So those would be my top five if I had to pick. But there's so much other good stuff in here. What, what do you think about all the illustrations? That surprised me. I'm sorry. That really surprised me to see the number of illustrations that are in here. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting, actually, that you said. Because it's, again, I think early on in Indian lawmaking, like even our, you know, pre-independence laws, there are a lot of illustrations. Like if you look at the Contract Act in India, there's like literally so many illustrations. And it it was used, used as a kind of guide for interpretation. But what's really interesting in this one is, I have to say, I like the idea of illustrations. I think it's a great like guide for interpretation. But uh, I'm just going to pick up one, right, which I was puzzling over this morning. If you think about, for instance, the second ground, so 
of processing for a private actor, which is legitimate use. So you can generally consent, but the second ground is legitimate use. And if you look at the illustrations for the ground, which is, for instance, it's on seven to so section seven, and I'm looking at it now as I talk to you. It says this is an this is a very interesting ground because essentially it says certain legitimate uses you don't have to get consent, right? So this is your mm-hmm. only other non-consent based ground. But first of all, the 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 clause itself is like so interesting because it's a double negative. It essentially says right. that basically, if you have somebody who's given you data for a specified process, this is seven subclause A, you can then use this if it's data in respect of which she has not indicated that she does not consent to the use. And I was, yeah, I had to read. <laughs> I feel like that's a hard double negative. Right. It's, I think <laughs> what it means is that if you, if you did consent, I, I mean, I'm trying to work. But essentially, if you did not say no, essentially, right. if yeah. you and and then you look at the which is not the same as saying yes. Exactly, exactly. No, me has to mean no, right? And yes, right. has to mean yes in all contexts. But I think the illustrations here are interesting because again, you see that they're very kind of offline illustrations. So yeah. you have a kind of it's talking about someone who goes to a see. makes a purchase at his pharmacy, and then they say, okay. Can you, I make this payment and can I send you the receipt by sending a message on the mobile phone? Presumably, Y has the, has the ability to process to send that receipt on mobile. The second one is an interesting one because it's a real estate broker. And it says that the broker then has all of this person's contacts to, to send them all the places they can rent and so on. And then they then say that subsequently, if you need to have further information about things on rent, they, it's okay, but then if you no longer need it, they have to cease. So all of these things are kind of, there's a, the question really becomes what happens if you're online and say you're filling out a Google form or something like this, right? What happens, you know, or, or you take a survey. I, I think it's very interesting if they'd stuck, since this law only applies to digital personal data, I think some of the illustrations are interesting because it kind of gives you a sense of where the people working on this were situated. But mm-hmm. the implications of this happen not just in a pharmacy, right? It's yeah. generally we're thinking right. about a data fiduciary, you know, the, the the kind of data broker market. I wish this had been a data broker illustration, basically. But again, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, to have the illustrations in the legislation, I think, is really useful, despite the fact that some might be missing. I've always said that I've been disappointed that EU law doesn't come with an explanatory amendment, <laughs> such as Dutch Dutch legislation does. When the initial yeah. draft is proposed, there is always an explanatory memorandum outlining the government's intentions with the law in general, but also with each and every provision. EU law has a little bit of that in the recitals of the law. And also, if you read the GDPR, you see some examples of, of, of the interpretation of the legislation, but it's never as specific as, as yeah. these illustrations. So I think it's actually really useful and would love to see more of those. Well, yeah, I mean, the illustration right after those two you talk about is a pregnant woman. A pregnant yeah. woman enrolls herself on the Adler, a website to uh, take advantage of government maternity benefits programs. They get yeah. very specific. Yeah, yeah. They, they do. Think, it's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I said, we have, as I said, like I think some of the older legislation did this. And again, it was it's a super interesting way of doing thought experiments. So I think that's right. where this is coming from. So we do oh, a like tradition that. of it. Yeah, of doing this. It's just recently, it has fallen out. So I like that the fact that they're back. 
I just think that I wonder if if some of the more complex use cases, maybe there's just a limit, right? If you're putting it in, you can't think about every every single true. You know, true. Well, oh, and as we talked about before, Austin law is passed when something yeah. has happened that inspires people to pass a law. So these illustrations might be very personal to the individuals who were involved in passing law. They may not yeah. be. I am wholly speculating here, but they came from yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Maybe there were complaints. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, but it, it's interesting and it should help an interpretation of the law, even if there is so much that is left unanswered. Yeah. And then going back to the double negative where you say where the person has not said no, we have something similar to that here in the U.S. under HIPAA, where it's okay. permitted unless the person has restricted it kind of thing. So it would have to be where they have not said no it would be basically the exact same thing. So let me get that right. So if, for instance, if they say she has not indicated, she has not indicated that she does not consent, does that really mean she has indicated that she does consent? It means silence is golden. I essentially should do. Mm. Because, and and the reason I'm coming back to that is because consent is such a big part of this. And it's a totally different thing. Yeah. And it it specifically says it has to be affirmative. There has to be affirmative, you know, there have to be actions taken. So it's very like strong in the consent section on affirmative, proper, like kind of action clear that that makes it very clear that this person is consenting, right? And so it's interesting that we then flip quickly to this other, and it it could have just said something like compatible purposes, compatible use, like GDPR or previously in India, we had things like, I think, yeah, I think it was related uses and things like that. So we could have gone down that kind of route. So I'm curious why... Again, you know, maybe we'll never know. Maybe this will just be... Right. We'll never know. Because we had incidental use. I think that was what it was in a previous draft. But, you know, as I said, this is one of the many things where I think when it plays out, it'll be really interesting. Yeah. Agreed. I'm I'm excited to watch it play out. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of work. Absolutely. And there, there are so many more things that we that we can talk about. So we'll be sure to have you back at some point. Yes. to talk more about this legislation because this was only the start of the deep dive in, 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 in my book. Thank you so much, Malavika, for, uh, for joining us today. Yes. We'll wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy here. For everybody, if they like our episodes, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite platform. Join the conversation on LinkedIn. You'll find us under Serious Privacy. You will find Kay on social media as Heart of Privacy, myself as Europol B, and Malavika as 10 in the morning. Thank you. Until next week. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey, listeners. Looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, 
OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me and Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>